Thank you, Jay, and the worship team. Thank you, Dennis, for that prayer. Really appreciate it. I think it really does speak to um, the message that um, God has in store for us today. Um, I got to confess uh, that, um, you know, as I was preparing for this message, all the, the feelings, you know, I started to remember all the feelings that I, that I used to have when I would uh, preach on a weekly basis. And, uh, you know, just the feelings of that pressure and uh, weekend preparation and, uh, and uh, got to be honest, I, you know, I don't miss it. I don't, I don't miss this feeling. And, and uh, you know, we, we, we got to stop giving Pastor Kurt vacation time. That's, that's what it really ultimately comes down to. You know, there's no PTO in the kingdom of God, right? Like, you know, there, you know we just got to, you know, next uh, church meeting, I say we put this uh, as a vote. Um, okay, let me, let me just pray. Uh, Father God, I, I thank you. Even though it's, you know, it's, it's um, a little nerve-wracking, but God, what an awesome honor and privilege it is to share your word. And, and God, I just pray, and right now I just surrender this moment to you. I surrender this moment to you, God. Rid me of all just, you know, like what Jay said, you know, this performance, uh, pressure, or anxiety. God, this moment is yours. It's, this moment is yours, and I pray that you would be glorified that you would open our hearts to receive our eyes and ears to, to see and hear what you have prepared for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, I think some of you are aware, some of you may not be aware, but I'm in bivocational ministry, which means that, you know, I, I do ministry part-time and I have a, a full-time job. Uh, and um, I work for a great company. It's called Regency Supply. It used to be known as Regency Lighting. And and what's really amazing about this company is, you know, the owners are Christians, a lot of the employees are Christians, so the culture is very much, um, you know, Christian. And, you know, they treat their employees very well uh, with a lot of care and um, appreciation. Um, another thing that's really cool is um, the owners are culturally Jewish, and their testimony of how they accepted Jesus is on YouTube through an organization called One for Israel. Uh, One for Israel, if you're not aware, is a is an organization with a mission to preach the gospel to Jews in Israel, along with Palestinians. You know, their aim is to really bridge that gap and, uh, you know, bring peace in the name of Jesus. Um, and, and in this video, uh, the owner, his name's Mike, he shares how uh, back in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, he was a hippie and uh, experimented with drugs. And, and he was also a seeker, right, seeker of truth and meaning and purpose. And uh, one day he, he found a way to kind of blend these two things together and heard of this, uh, this magic mushroom in Mexico. So him and his friend decided to hitchhike all the way down to Mexico to have this sort of God encounter, let's say, right? Um, now along the way, uh, Mike shares that um, the people that would pick them up would share the gospel with them, share about Jesus. And, and, that, and this would happen repeatedly. And and, and this message, this gospel message, began to resonate with him, uh, so much so that he started reading the Bible. And when he read the New Testament, or excuse me, the Old Testament, he shares, like, it was familiar, you know, he, he gravitated towards it, it, it was, it was um, you know, he identified with the Old Testament, but when he read the New Testament, it was just completely, there was just this disconnect, and he just could not bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, he just could not make the connection between the Old Testament and Jesus in particular. Um, but the gospel was, 
drawing him in and you know eventually you know started going out to church but that tension was always there this tension of how do i how do i really fully accept jesus you know and have peace with with the old testament and he shared how one day um, a retired pastor visited his home um, and mike shared about you know that inner tension and and the pastor um uh, upon hearing his tension, opened the Bible, and without telling him where he was reading from, he read this particular chapter, and, and this is the uh, chapter I want to uh, read for you today. Uh, so if you could, imagine yourself there. Imagine yourself maybe having the same struggle of right, having a difficult time reconciling the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, imagine yourself in that position and hearing these words. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. After reading this chapter, the pastor asked Mike, Mike, which book do you think this chapter is from in the Bible? And Mike replied, well, I mean, I don't know, Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Mark. I mean, clearly this chapter is talking about Jesus. 
And to his surprise, the pastor handed him the Bible and pointed to where this passage was from, and it was from Isaiah chapter 53. And Mike shares how his mind was just blown away, right? Right, here is this just direct and obvious reference to Jesus and his life and sacrifice. And it was all in the Old Testament, and, and it was just mind-blown. And the pastor continued to uh, point out other Old Testament passages that pointed to the identity of Jesus. And in that moment, Mike shares that he was com- convinced. Right, it was, he accepted with absolute certainty, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. What an amazing luxury we have, right? That we can open the, the Word of God, right? And explore the Scriptures and search for ourselves. We can see what has taken place and what has been fulfilled and who Jesus is and how all of this applies to us. We can see it. We have it right here. We have the benefit of hindsight. We can look back and make the connections. And it's such a valuable and invaluable um, privilege and honor we have, right? We have the word. And, And it's so important for us to utilize this gift, to look back so that we can learn and explore for ourselves what has taken place. And it's so important for us to do that, especially in Isaiah, because Isaiah is one of, those, uh, one of the books that's quoted probably the most in the New Testament. And when we look back in Isaiah, we see what the problem was very clearly. It's, 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 it's laid out in chapter 1. The problem was um, everything on the surface appeared to be good. Right? On paper, the numbers were off the charts. The temple was busy with countless offerings and sacrifices. And yet, and yet the people were missing the heart of the matter in that the poor, the needy, the sick, the widows and orphans were being neglected. In other words, they were indifferent to the suffering of others. And this infuriates God, infuriates God. And he sends Isaiah to prophesy against the nation. And Isaiah says, Assyria is coming. Assyria is coming. And, um, and this prophecy would have, uh, the people would have taken this prophecy very seriously because they saw this happening in real time. And this is where I have to expand a bit more about Jewish biblical history. So bear with me. There's going to be some information coming. <laughs> um, Kind of a, 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 I'm thinking of a joke. Jim, before the message, said, hey, you're going to be fine as long as you're, you're funny. And I just thought to myself, oh, my goodness, there's just so much information today. So uh, bear with me. But just to kind of expand on biblical Jewish history, um, the first king of Israel was, was who? Saul. Saul. And then after Saul was David. And then after David was Solomon. And then after Solomon was Ooh, wow, okay. People are are reading their Bibles. After Solomon, it gets a little messy. Uh, The kingdom splits into two. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. 
The northern kingdom is the kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom is the kingdom of Judah. There's 10 tribes up north, two tribes in the south, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. The downfall of the kingdom of Israel happened when Assyria was coming. Assyria was coming. And the king of Israel at the time, instead of humbling himself and owning their sin and asking for God for help and deliverance, he makes a political pact with Egypt, hoping that this alliance would secure their sovereignty. Well, that fails. Assyria comes and destroys the kingdom of Israel. And obviously, the kingdom of Judah is aware. So when Isaiah approaches the leaders of the kingdom of Judah and says, Assyria is coming, King Hezekiah responds rightly. He humbles himself and owns the sin of the kingdom and begs for God's deliverance, and God comes through. He delivers the kingdom of Judah from Assyria miraculously. It's amazing. And you would think that someone who has experienced this would maintain that posture of humility, but Hezekiah, King Hezekiah makes just a massive mistake if, if you've been following along. Um, he invites the Babylonians, right? And he gives them a tour of the kingdom and the palace and the treasure trove. He pretty much reveals everything to the Babylonians. And the strategy was, I'm going to make an alliance with Babylon. Isaiah confronts Hezekiah about this, right, and says, listen, you don't know what you're doing. In the years ahead, Babylon is actually going to be the one to destroy the kingdom of Judah, and they're going to lay it down to waste. And Hezekiah makes his, man, it's, you know, he, he makes a foolish response, right? And he says, well, as long as it's not happening during my lifetime, we're good, essentially. And that kind of reveals, you know, perhaps about our human nature, right? Like, as long as it's not impacting my life and my family and my home, right, I can turn the blind eye. Uh, about 42 years after Hezekiah's reign, another king um, comes to the throne in Judah. His name's Josiah. Have you, do you guys know anyone by the name of Josiah? That's a, you know, that's not a really a common name, although it's actually a pretty cool name, Josiah, right? Um, I met one Josiah in my lifetime. It was at the other company that I used to work for, um, this new hire in the marketing department. His name was Josiah, and I was so excited because I've never met a Josiah before. And, you know, I can be socially awkward. This was one of these moments where I was, like, totally just, just awkward. So just waited a few days and approached this stranger, right, this new hire, and I was like, hey, you know your name's in the Bible. And he responded kind of in shock, like, uh, uh, yeah, um, the, the last great king, right? And I was like, that's right. The last great king. That's Josiah, the last great king of Judah. And something really noteworthy happened during Josiah's reign. And it's, uh, if you want to read it for yourself, it's in 2 Kings chapter 22. There's a discovery that's made during Josiah's reign. They discover the book of the law, the laws of Moses, which means what? They haven't been following the laws of Moses. And Josiah at first is like, what, you know, what is this? And he begins to read, and then all of a sudden he realizes what it is, and he humbles himself 
and calls the entire nation and begins to read the book of the law line by line, word for word, and says, I'm making a decree. We are following the book of the law. But by this point, it was a little too late, right? 20, around 24 years later, after Josiah's reign, Babylon comes, and they destroy the kingdom of Judah. They destroy the kingdom. They destroy the temple. And they take the people as captives. Now, Isaiah prophesied about this, that Babylon would come and destroy Judah, destroy the kingdom, and that the Israelites would be able to return, not during Babylon's reign, but the next empire, the Persian Empire. During the Persian Empire, the Israelites would be, um, uh, the door would be open for them to return back to Jerusalem and rebuild their communities and rebuild that temple. Now, uh, a few weeks ago, a brother from uh, InterVarsity, if you recall, came as a guest speaker. Uh, I believe his name was Timothy, and he kind of laid out that scene for us, if you remember. Um, so the Israelites do return, and they do begin to rebuild the temple. And, and there was like this gathering, right, where they're sort of commencing the, the project, and half the group are celebrating the reconstruction, and there are all these young people. But the other half, the older people, are wailing, they're grieving, because this isn't what it used to be. Right? And that sentiment, that ratio of 50-50, kind of carried throughout the generations where half the people were enthusiastic about the rebuilding of the temple, but the other half was skeptical whether the temple had any substance. Reason being, where's our sovereignty? We're still under foreign power. The Persian Empire, the Greek, Roman Empire. If God is really with us, if God is really dwelling inside that temple, shouldn't we be victorious? And so around this time, the focus shifted from um, banking on temple practices to maintain uh, a right relationship with right relationship with God, it kind of shifted towards obeying the law, right? And banking on that to regain the favor of God, to regain right relationship with God. The focus shifted from the temple to the books of the law. And this is why when we read the New Testament, when we read about Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they are so gung-ho about the law. Well, it's because they believe this is how we are going to regain our sovereignty. This is how we're going to get our nation back. We need to obey the law. But in doing so, they were missing the heart of the matter. And this is what Jesus calls out repeatedly. Like, yes, you are obeying the law, but this person who was blind can now see. This person who was lame can now walk. This person who's been dealing with sickness for years is now healed. But the religious leaders, they, you know, weren't able to see it. it was, there was a blind spot because of their focus to accomplish their agenda. If we keep the law, God will reward us with liberation, and a new king will arise. This was their expectation. A new king who's going to rise up like a boss. Like a boss a political juggernaut right, who is going to backhand the Romans, right? 
any uh, other nation that you know, goes against us. This, this new king is going to be mighty and victorious and, and just overthrow all powers. That's what they were expecting. You know, when we do Bible study uh, with the youth, you know, we're reading the Gospel of Mark right now, and this is what we see as well, right? Even the disciples are like, Jesus, man, when you, when you get up there on that throne, can I, can me and my bro be to your left and to your right? Like, can we, can we be your mighty right man? You know, like right hand and left hand? And Jesus is like, man, you don't get it. I'm going to die, <laughs> and I'm going to suffer. And, and, and you see this throughout the Gospels. The disciples are like, Jesus, stop talking crazy. That's not the plan. That's not the expectation. They were expecting something much more mighty and powerful. Isaiah prophesied the opposite, though. And, we, and that's what we read today, right? Isaiah 53. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah will come, but he will look like a servant and act like a servant and die like a servant. The most innocent person will voluntarily lay down his life for the sake of the most undeserved. That's the gospel message. But he will rise again from the dead. And Isaiah prophesied that the servant, that servant king, will take his reign and he will become the king of all kings, it says, the Lord of all lords. Right? And all nations will bow down before his throne. And Isaiah also prophesied that once this king takes reign, this king will also have his servants. And his servants will follow in the example of their king. The servants will also humble themselves. And those are the ones that God will look upon with favor. In the final chapter of Isaiah 66, it says, those right, who God will look upon with favor, those are humble, contrite in spirit, and who tremble at my word. I take the last part, trembling at his word, to mean obedience. Contrite, I had to look up that word. You know, that's not really a word that we use a lot these days, right? You know, contrite means remorseful, having a sense of guilt. That's what contrite means. You know, there's, a, there's an inseparable connection between this description of being humble, being contrite in spirit, and being obedient to being in right relationship with God and right relationship with people. There's an inseparable connection between the two. And I think it's tied to the essence of the gospel message in that the person who is most innocent voluntarily lays down his life for the sake of those who are most undeserved. And it's so important for us to to properly identify ourselves within this truth. Jesus illustrates this with a parable. Uh, this is a parable that I've shared with the youth a lot. Um, uh, Jesus shares how um, there was a, a master of a vineyard, 
right? And he goes around town early in the morning and he hires some people. He's like, listen, come work for me for the day, right? And then around noon, the, the master of the vineyard goes off and hires more people around 12. Come work with me for the day. And then just before closing time, around, let's say, 4 p.m. or so, right, he goes off and he hires more people for labor. And then it's 5 o'clock. And everyone's in line to get paid. Right? And the master of the vineyard goes to the person who was hired at 4 p.m. and gives that person a full day's wage. How would you respond? Right? If you got there at 4 p.m., worked barely, and received a full day's wage, it's like, whoa, amazing. Such generosity and grace. Wow, you are such a wonderful person. It is so undeserving, and yet you are so generous, right? Anyways, then he goes to the person, the people who are hired at 12 at noon, and gives them a full day's wage, and they respond likewise, just amazed by the king's or the master's generosity. Now, the person, the people who were hired at 8 a.m., now they're like, oof, man, if these people got a full day's wage, I'm at least getting double right? Secretly expecting triple the amount. Like, look at this person's generosity. There is no way I'm going to get the same wage. I'm going to get extra. Well, the master comes to that person or to the group and says, here's your full day's wage. And, and the people are upset. Dude, you, you, gave, you gave these people barely worked the full day's wage. I've been here all day laboring, and you're giving me the same salary as these people? And the master responds, are you upset with me because I'm generous? Right? Like, do you have any right to be upset with me for giving you what you work for, what you deserve? Like, am I, do, you, do I owe you any more than what was agreed upon? And the question that we need to pose to ourselves is this. Who do we identify with in this parable? Who do we identify with in this parable? The point is that we, all of us need to be identifying with the person who received generously. All of us. All of us got what we did not deserve. That's the gospel message. We received an abundance of grace, mercy, and love, which was completely undeserved. Not one of us in here can say that I deserved it. Isaiah 64 says, our righteous acts are like filthy rags. It's a strong language, essentially to say, no one can earn it. No one can earn it. But it's this very principle, it's this very truth, if we apply it to ourselves, that we can be in right relationship with God, appreciate and honor God for who he is, and also love God. Our neighbors love the people around us. The principle is this. If you've been forgiven much, it says in the Bible, you will love much. If you've been forgiven little, you will love little. That's the principle. Whenever I'm preparing for a message, like, I'm the first person God is speaking to. Right? There's so much conviction and and challenge that I personally receive, you know, as I prepare for this message. And 
And you know, I certainly had to do a, a self-inventory check right, during this message. Um, and I want to invite you to do the same. Examine your own hearts. Do a self-inventory check. This gets a little tricky, though, I have to admit, because sometimes when we talk about our sin, about being aware of our sin, right, um, sometimes it can lead to um, a shame-based approach, right? Like, where I'm, I'm, I'm pointing my fat finger and saying, sinner, repent, right? And, and you know, we've kind of seen this before, and it, it's really shame-based um, and probably not so helpful. But it could also lead to another direction where we sort of maneuver out of owning our sin. We kind of wiggle ourselves out of it. Um, and, and it happens to all of us. Um, I remember one time I was uh, hanging out with a pastor friend, and, and both of us were just complaining about our wives. And uh, I know it's not really holy. It's not something that you would expect two pastors to do, right? But, you know, we got to vent somewhere, right? And, uh, and we're just complaining about our wives. And then that conversation or that dialogue quickly turned into uh, just a sense of guilt and conviction because it turned out that both of us had reacted in the same way during uh, a moment of conflict with our spouses, right? And it went something like this. Wife, you need to appreciate me more, right? Because I'm not like these other husbands who cheat on their wives and, you know, I don't go out and party and, and, and you know, I'm, I don't, I don't, you know, you know, I'm not always out and, you know, not coming home and you, you need to appreciate me more because I'm not like these bad husbands. And it turns out the other guy, the other pastor did pretty much the same approach, right? And our wives responded in a similar way. And, and the response was basically this. So you want me to celebrate you for doing what you should be doing? <laughs> oh, someone's clapping. Oh. <laughs> right, I mean, you, you see the irony there, right? Like, like, so, you know, I don't know, I can give other silly examples, right? Like, mom, you need to appreciate me more because, you know, I'm not like these other kids who didn't brush their teeth this morning, and, you know, I, I, it's just, it, it can just go on and on, right? Just silly, silly examples. The, the point is this. Sometimes, you know, we, we avoid owning our sin by kind of pointing to other people who are really, really bad. Like, God, I'm not like these other murderers, <laughs> right? I've never robbed a bank in my life, you know? I obey traffic laws. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, man, there have been times when I'm just rude. You know what I mean? Man, there are times when, man, I get really judgy. I gotta admit it. You know, and I've held offenses. I've disliked people even to this day, goodness. You know, not because of a major violation, but a minor offense. Sometimes it's like, I don't really like your personality, and you said something inappropriate and wrong, and now I do not like you. <laughs> and I still don't like this person, right? Sometimes it gets really petty, or our sin, you know? Sometimes I feel like I'm better than people, right? Sometimes I judge people because of their circumstances, right? 
I got what I deserved. You know why my life is so good? Because I got what I deserved. And you know why your life sucks? Well, you got what you deserved, right? Like, you know, it could kind of go into this really terrible um, dichotomy. But here's the good news. If we're honest with ourselves, if we take the time to humble ourselves before God, and ask God to reveal our sin, right? And if we're aware, if we become aware of our sin, which is a gift, by the way, man, it's such a gift to be, to understand, to be aware of where we've gone wrong, because then change can happen. If we humble ourselves, confess our sin, forgiveness is available. And not only that, our capacity to forgive and love and be merciful and kind to others grows along with it. And we, become, and we begin to change, change for the better. And our relationship with God begins to grow and our, right, our love for one another begins to mirror the love of Christ. And we become no longer slaves to our sin, but a slave to obedience, it says in Romans 6, a slave to obedience that leads to righteousness. No longer submitting to the enemy, but submitting to God. We live under submission to God as his servants doing his will and seeing the fruit of it begin to expand in and through our lives where we become the community of God right, that God had in his heart all along. When we do so, here's a promise. We will see and taste right, that the Lord is truly good and begin to express that goodness and grace to those around us. All right, let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your word. God, thank you so much that we are so blessed and privileged to be, to be able to open the word and see for ourselves. God, I pray, number one, that we would do so. I pray that we would recommit our lives to devoting time with you. And that as we read your word, Holy Spirit, come and, and minister to us. Reveal things that have been hidden. Open our minds, our hearts, our eyes, and our ears to see and hear and receive your truth. And I pray that the truth will set us free. And indeed, we will see and taste that you are really, really good. And your goodness isn't just contained in my own life or in my own walls or in my own family, but that goodness expands and it overflows. I pray that it may be with us that your love and grace would overflow and expand in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.